0: All right, I think they stole the head mic, didn't they? Or do we have it? Sorry. I I thought they took some of the other mics, but that's all right. All right, uh, right after I speak, I have to catch a flight to Tweed Heads. Uh, I'm speaking in a church, a combined church group in the north tonight so if i take off don't think i'm abandoning post i've got to go here we go and i appreciate prayers for those who are sick after vbs uh, my wife is quite ill thank you she has the uh, the flu i think and uh Others were sick, and uh, it was just a challenging week. All let right, me try to put this on. All right, we on? Ooh, that's better. All right, if you would please uh, take your Bibles uh, and open them up to Matthew chapter 2. Again, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to again read a passage that records for us the itinerary of the Messiah uh, immediately after his birth in Bethlehem. By now in our series, you should know that Matthew is giving us here in chapter 2 the geographical origins of the Messiah, which is basically built Uh, The whole chapter is built around four references in the Old Testament, uh, connecting the Messiah to four different geographical locations. Matthew's initial readership consisted of the Jews, and if they were looking for the Messiah, where would they find him? Well, they have the ancient prophecy, you recall in Micah 5, that he would be born In Bethlehem, that's an obvious reference to us, although initially uh, they missed it. But later on in his life, he comes to be connected uh, just as famously with Nazareth in Galilee. But how does that happen? Well, in between Bethlehem and Nazareth, there are two other places that are connected with him. and We're going to read about them now, beginning in verse 13. By the way, I had an outline, but I left it in my printer, so I do apologize. You have to take notes on your own paper. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Much of our attention this past year, has been drawn to the Ukraine. And we certainly are in prayer for the great suffering of that nation under constant attack by Russia. But while searching for updated information on the war, I came across a story from Ukrainian Politics that was written in 2014. The headline for this article in the Washington Post read, Remember when a Ukrainian presidential candidate fell ill. This was referring to a presidential election that was held in the Ukraine in November of 2004, when the incumbent president supposedly won, but then they uncovered massive fraud. Uh, so much so that the Ukrainian Supreme Court ruled that there would be a revote. Apparently, the opposition candidate, a man named Viktor Yushchenko, fell violently ill and lesions started appearing on his face and he had severe abdominal and back pain. The left side of his face was paralyzed. And uh, his opponents claimed that he was eating too much sushi and booze. (laughs) Uh, But of course, the doctors determined he was actually poisoned with dioxin. In his food. Well, of course, it was a huge scandal, but Yushchenko recovered. And he went on in the re election to win the presidency, and then he was re elected again, and finally he was ousted in 2014 when that article was written. Now, that is the headline article because it uncovers the terrible moral and ethical failure of someone within a prison administration trying desperately to hold on to their office by murdering the opposition. Uh, It's outrageous, it's shocking, and it gained the attention of the world when it happened. Well, that's how verse 16 in our text is supposed to affect the reader. Unfortunately, most of us are accustomed to the story of the murders in Bethlehem from our childhood. So we've really lost a sense of shock at what happened. The thought that someone would deliberately kill a baby, let alone several of them, by targeting uh, male babies and toddlers, two years old and younger, for extermination, is shocking on its own, let alone to find out that it's driven by the chief official in the government. Uh, This is over-the-top political maneuvering. This is scandalous. I mean, imagine this as a headline in any newspaper today. Incumbent monarch attempts infanticide of small village to wipe out potential opponent. This would be international news, and yet it's part of the unfolding drama of the coming of the Messiah into the world. Matthew is writing this account about 50 years after the events. So it'd be like someone uncovering a tragic incident that occurred in somewhere like Nazi-occupied France that was covered up and unknown and finally let out to see the light of day. Uh, I've read stories of villages in World War II where every man, woman, and child was shot so no one was left to talk about it. Uh, nobody knew and no one suspected until you know, a mass grave was uncovered and then these Voices from the dead came to life, and it fills you with a sense of horror at what must have happened. Well, that's exactly the effect that this story of the killings in Bethlehem would have had on Matthew's original readership. No doubt there were very few in the days of Herod who really knew what happened down there in that village. Maybe word got out, some children disappearing in the night, never heard from again, And now Matthew is uncovering all of that. and This is what lay behind the weeping and inconsolable grief of those mothers in that little village of Bethlehem and the surrounding area about the time that the Messiah had supposedly been born. So this morning I want to cover the subject of the Messiah's connection with This place of lamentation referred to uh, by the prophet Jeremiah in verse 18. That place is Ramah. There was weeping. There was great mourning in Ramah over the loss of certain children. And the Messiah came to be connected with that place because of the weeping of those mothers when they lost their babies on that horrible night in the first century. That event is the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. And now let me remind you again that these kinds of things really are important for us to know and to study because they remind us that there is a God in heaven. There is a God who has been working out His saving purposes for all of these millennia. The coming of the Lord Jesus to earth was predicted. Predicted. And it was predicted in some detail. And some of those details look at the way people reacted when they heard of his coming. And God intends to persuade Israel today with these accounts. And really anyone who compares the New Testament with the Old Testament should see the close connection between what was written by those ancient prophets and what actually happened in the life of the Messiah seeing that connection really does renew your faith in the sovereign plan of God not only for the birth of his son but also for his sovereign plan in your life so let's look now at the connection of the Messiah with this place called Rama and how it came to be that those mothers were deprived of their children i want to begin by turning our attention to verse 16 and that terrible incident itself, and simply point out that it was was a huge contrast to everything else that took place when it was discovered that the Messiah had been born. Uh, The night on which he entered the world was a night, as you know, that was split open by the Shekinah glory of God, a brightness in the heavens. Uh, One that broke the darkness of the night. Countless angels singing at His coming. Uh, Shepherds were struck down in awe over the sight. Then they hurried over to Bethlehem to find this child who had been announced. Just eight days later, He's taken right into Jerusalem, the capital city, into the temple. Here's this old man, Simeon, who sees the baby. And then he cries out, O Lord, that your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Then an old widow woman comes over, Anna. She's 84 years of, of age. She lights up when she sees this baby, and then she runs wild with the report that the Messiah has been born. Shortly after that, no doubt, the Magi come. They lay down there extravagant gifts before him, and this is what has been taking place so far. It's mountain peak experiences. But then you have this terrible, tragic plunge into a valley of darkness that is in total contrast to everyone else's response. It's shocking and unthinkable, but in the dead of night, there's the sound of soldiers muffled knocking on doors, rough men perhaps covering their faces to avoid identification, making brutal inquiries as to where they can find families with small children. And those helpless sleeping babies and toddlers are snatched out of their beds or out of their mother's arms. They're taken on horseback to some rendezvous where their cries are silenced forever. Forever. Perhaps their little bodies are then carelessly tossed over the edge of some precipice or down a well. Maybe they're incinerated in a night fire and Rachel is left weeping for her children. This is the kind of thing that just conjures up terrible nightmares. And none of us can really begin to capture the horror of the moment when those children were taken from their homes for no apparent reason. You only have to imagine what that would be like for something uh, similar to happen in your own home, uh, to just have a shiver run down your spine at the unimaginable grief and sense of loss. Now, Bethlehem was not a large village in that day, so it wouldn't be a lot of children, although Herod included the surrounding districts in his order. And in the first century, of course, infant mortality from birth complications and childhood diseases often took half or more of every child born. But when you stop and think that it was only the male children who were targeted, if the soldiers even bothered to check, it would be quite reasonable to assume that nevertheless, maybe 15 or 20 households were affected in Bethlehem and the immediate region around it. But all of those families, they're left grief-stricken, probably never knowing what happened or why it happened to their children who disappeared into the night. Who could have perpetrated such a monstrous act? In verse 16, the main perpetrator is this man, Herod, whom the world calls the great to this day. And as we saw in the last sermon, he really was great in many respects. He was a towering personality. Uh, He was somewhat of a genius. He certainly charmed his Roman overlords with many decades uh, building cities and naming palaces in their honor, giving them over-the-top banquets and receptions. And he was a great architect. He was a great builder. He was a great administrator. He even showed great compassion on his people at times, perhaps to curry their favor. On one occasion, history records that he melted down his own gold plates. How nice of him. In order to provide corn for the people during a famine. But this man, nevertheless, was capable of this murderous deed. And lest any modern reader find it so unimaginable that he questions the biblical record, which they do, keep in mind that history holds many records of kings committing atrocious acts, and Herod himself was known to commit the same kind of crimes throughout his entire reign. I mentioned last time that he murdered his favorite wife, Maryamne. He had her two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, executed. On one occasion, when some of the leaders in Jerusalem objected to him putting up a golden eagle at one of the gates in the temple, he had 42 of them burned to death. Just before he died, he had many leading citizens of Jerusalem imprisoned. And he had an order sealed that was to be opened immediately after his death, which said, that they were all to be executed to ensure that there'd be a great deal of mourning when he died. Really nice guy. So yes, he is capable of what we read about in verse 16. But what's going on here is revealed in Scripture to be far more than an old, jealously insane survivor and his perceived threat to his throne. I mentioned this last time. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 tells us that there is a diabolical spirit behind this event. He's called that old serpent in that chapter. It's the dragon or Satan lying in wait as Israel is about to give birth to the Messiah. He's waiting for that child so he can destroy him. In addition to that, you have to keep in mind the whole context of the struggle that is going on right now between opposing kingdoms. When the Messiah came to earth, it was kind of like an invasion. John one eleven tells us that he came unto his own and his own received him not. The first own is referring to his own things. The second own is referring to his people. So he came unto his own things. He came to a world that he had made and sustained and governed and owned for himself. He came to his own things, but when he did that, he came into an utterly hostile environment. It's always been that way since the fall. When sin began to twist and distort every part of our world and every person in it. And as a result, the Lord Jesus must use violence and force Himself into that environment. In other words, even though His mission is benevolent, His method must often be violent. Now He made this apparent very early in His ministry. When He fashioned a whip of cords and cleaned out the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers, He warned His followers... That he had not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He told us that a man's enemies would even be those of his own household. So yes, He does come with a kind of violence. He comes in order to liberate captives like the Allies came in the Second World War, but they had to kill the Axis forces before they could set loose the captives. It's exactly what the Lord's coming is all about. And the mind of the flesh in every person recoils at his invasion when they hear about it. Let me show you. Turn to Romans 8, where we have an explanation of that part of every unredeemed person and how they respond to God and his invasion. The the Apostle Paul is explaining why Every individual has something inside of him that just cannot submit to the law of God. I mean, there is a God. Uh, He reigns over all. He has righteous standards by which he intends to rule us. But no one on earth can tolerate that that law, and that explains the nature of the environment into which the Messiah must come. Why can no one accept the rule of God? Romans 7 and 8 are part of the explanation. Look at what he says. Romans 8, 7. Paul writes, The carnal mind, the mindset of the flesh, is enmity against God. It's hostile. For it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Literally, it says it is not able to. It does not have the ability to be subject to God's law. Do we really recognize this truth? That unless God does a regenerating miracle in our lives, people, and even those who call themselves Christians, those who live a generally moral life, people are generally totally incapable of actually submitting themselves to God. So although they may go to church, although they may celebrate Christmas and Easter, as soon as they're confronted with the government of God through that babe, the Messiah, there's just something inside of them that immediately recoils. And if they're pushed into a corner by his demands, they will snap back. That's true of every individual because every individual is born with this inherited, fallen, unredeemable nature that the Bible calls the flesh. It simply has an incurable enmity against God. It cannot be subject to His law. And that explains why people, even in your family, instinctively feel that Jesus saving you is a threat to them. His coming into your life is an invasion. He's taking control of His own things. And that means a total change for people who submit themselves to His government. This is the whole reason why even loved ones respond in the way that they do. I mean, they divorce a mate who's become a Christian. They disown children who've accepted Christ. They harden their parental love. They turn their backs. It's the spirit of Herod the Great perpetuated. It's the enmity of the flesh. It's the God of this world behind it all. It is rival kingdoms refusing to give up its captives. But this is God and His rule redeeming the things that are His own through His Messiah. So are we convinced that we're all part of this cosmic conflict that commits crimes such as the one in Bethlehem in the first century? Well, now I want us to look at the prophecy that Matthew says was being fulfilled in part by what took place in those tragic events. Let's just read verses 17 and 18 again to refresh our minds on what it says. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is one of those passages, I think, that we really tend to overlook in our reading the story of the nativity, right? I mean, it just seems like this random prophecy that has very little connection to what was going on at the time. I mean, something happened to Rachel's children, she was mourning, kind of like those mothers, lost their kids at Bethlehem, but that's about as far as we look. Well, there is more to this prophecy, and I want to begin looking at it, first of all, by turning to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. And I'm beginning here because Genesis 35 tells us something about Rachel, who's named in the prophecy. I won't read it all, but this is where Jacob and his family have been told by the Lord in verse 16 to journey from Bethel. They were to go to Bethlehem, but before they arrived, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, began to suffer from her labor pains. She was about to give birth, but there were complications. And In verse 19, she died. It says, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. You can actually visit it in modern Israel today. It's just outside of Bethlehem. So that's how Rachel came to be connected with Bethlehem. When people speak of her burial, they associate it with that city, which later became the city of David's upbringing. And then, of course, the birthplace of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. She's been buried there now for about 4,000 years. We'll now turn to Jeremiah 31, where we have the prophecy that Matthew quotes, referring to Rachel weeping for her children. We've just seen how Rachel came to be associated with Bethlehem. But how does she come to be associated then with this place called Ramah? Because Bethlehem is in the south of Jerusalem. Ramah is north of Jerusalem. So now we have Rachel connected with a place that isn't her burial place, and yet, according to Matthew, she's weeping over something that is associated with both Ramah and Bethlehem. You follow me? So, what's the connection? Let's start here. Rachel gave birth to two sons. Uh, what were their names? Joseph was one, who died when she who. who Who was born when she died? Yeah, Benjamin. Okay, Benjamin. Joseph had two sons, and their names became two of the tribes of Israel. Who were they? Okay, Ephraim and Manasseh, those tribes were part of the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember that uh, Israel split into two after Solomon's death, and ten tribes formed the northern kingdom and Judah and Benjamin formed the southern kingdom of which Jerusalem was a part. You remember that. Well, in Jeremiah 31, you can see now God's restoration of those tribes in the northern kingdom. So I want to read the first 20 verses of the chapter, and I want you to keep a lookout for the prophecy in Matthew 2. All right, follow along as I read. Verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord... I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Okay, that's referring to all Israel, north and south. Now he talks about the north. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword, speaking of the captivity in Assyria, uh, found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest... The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I shall build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will will bring them from the north country, that's Assyria, and also gather them from the ends of the earth among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child, together a great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For The Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well watered garden. They shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. So those 14 verses you can see are all about the restoration of Israel to their land after many decades of captivity. But now Jeremiah looks back in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. I've surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Now, Notice that Ephraim is mentioned several times in the chapter, and that's because it's one of the predominant tribes in the northern kingdom. In fact, Ephraim is often mentioned in the Old Testament as shorthand for all 10 of those tribes in the north. Um, For example, verse 18, he says, "Uh, I've surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. In verse 20, is Ephraim, my dear son, is he a pleasant child? You can see verse 9, verse 6. He's not just talking there about Ephraim as a single tribe, but as a representation of all of the northern tribes. In fact, if you look at verse 5, he mentions the mountains of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. That's how we know this chapter is referring to the northern tribes, among whom... Rachel's grandsons were the predominant tribes. Starting to see the picture? So Rachel's buried in Bethlehem. But now she's pictured as weeping over something that happens to her direct descendants in the northern tribes. What happens? Well, whatever it is, it happened at Ramah. And that's why that town is mentioned. Well, what we discover then is that Ramah became kind of a prisoner of war camp. It was a staging ground where the Jewish captives were herded together after the nation was defeated by Assyria. They were herded together, and then they were processed for the long march into captivity. Of course, when that happened, all the mothers remaining in the land wept. They mourned over the fact that they would never again see their children. In Jeremiah 31.15, Rachel then, the ancient mother of many of those descendants, is pictured as mourning. She's mourning through her descendants as their ancient mother. They mourn and cry as their children are marched off into captivity. And so, a voice is heard in Ram, a lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more they've been carried off into a foreign land they're gone they're captives this whole scenario reminds me of the days when the jews were forced into labor camps and you remember that after they were shipped there in cattle cars families were fighting so hard to stay together and yet they were torn apart some went to the right to the gas chambers, and others went to the left and slave labor. The anguish of mothers and fathers and children being physically torn apart is well documented by survivors. And it's like the mourning of mothers in Rama as their sons are marched away as captives, likely never to be seen again. Now, what's really remarkable is that this prophecy is then connected to what happened in the infanticide at Bethlehem many centuries later. So what is the connection of that with what Herod did? Well, as I pointed out last week and several times in this message already, it's really part of the greater scheme of things. Even though this prophecy and Assyrian captivity of Rachel's children occurred hundreds of years before the birth of the Messiah and a thousand years after Rachel's death and burial in Bethlehem, Jeremiah, by inspiration, connects the captivity with Rachel and then Matthew connects Rachel and this prophecy with the birth of the Messiah. You can see the The grand scheme of God, right? Because God is not bound by time. He's overseeing the whole thing. In other words, when you look at this in sequence, it begins with Rachel being associated with Bethlehem. She's buried there. But not before she gives birth to some of the tribes of Israel. Then you have the Assyrian captivity of those tribes taking place with weeping. And then you have the Messiah being born where Rachel is buried, and the cycle is complete, and it's all connected in the grand scheme of God. How? Let me show you in four points. Four quick points. Number one, it's all about the same people. It's the nation of Israel, right? It's these people whom God separated out for himself. It's these people who are the descendants of Abraham, with whom God made and unconditional covenant to whom he said, I'll make a great people from you and all in you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed, which is uh, why the uh, Messiah was born through those people, it's that same unbroken line of God's people from Rachel to Rama to Bethlehem. Secondly, it's the same circumstance, It's the same circumstance in both Jeremiah 31 and Matthew 2. What is it? It's the rulers or the reigning officials who are rejecting God as their king. I mean, why why was there an Assyrian captivity in the first place? Why was there a Babylonian captivity 150 years later? Because these same people had demanded an earthly king when God was their king. But when they got their king, those kings usurped the authority of God. I mean, God gave them a king and he said, hey, your king needs to follow my rules, my righteous rules, rule in the fear of God. Well, what happened? Well, in case after case, these earthly kings attempted to throw off the cords of God. They wanted to reign independently. And it's the same hostile spirit of the flesh today, right? Nothing is new. Back then, they wore royal robes. Today, they wear, they wear two piece suits. But it's the same antagonistic spirit all over the world from the time of the fall. So we have the same people Israel and the same circumstance of a ruling monarch rejecting the reign of God. And Herod is just perpetuating the current rebellion in Matthew 2. Thirdly, it's the same consequence. These people in Jeremiah 31, the consequence was their weeping. Because of the actions of their current reigning leadership. In Rachel's descendants, weeping in Ramah for her children being taken away in chains. In Matthew 2, it's people under the iron heel of a rebellious king and these awful consequences involving the loss of their children. The people are bereaved, they're weeping, both scenarios. But number four, and most importantly, it's the same God doing the same thing. It's the God of these people dealing with them through their sorrows. Uh, God is driving them to Himself. In the book, Crowded to Christ, Eli Maxwell talks about the fact that God is so intent on redeeming you and dealing with the hostile spirit in your flesh, he's willing to use anything at all. Captivity, bloodshed, fire, storm, death camps, anything. He will use what it takes to crowd people to Christ. Well, it's the same God doing the same thing in Jeremiah and in Matthew in order to bring his people back to him. In other words, God intends on having this nation for himself. He has predetermined that his son will reign over them. But his son came to his own things and his own people received him not. But one day they will. Because God has determined to save them. And he will use even these kinds of events in their lives to accomplish that. He's been doing this in the nation since its beginning. And He does it in individual people's lives as well, doesn't He? Just look at verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. And you can really see here the fuller context of God's plan. Behold, He says, the days are coming when I will make, now look at this, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And now we get an extended description of all the provisions of the new covenant. Which include this in verse 33. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. At the end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity. Their sin I will remember no more. Have we ever truly come to grips with those I wills? I will do this. I will forgive their iniquity. I will heal these people. I will remove their transgressions. I will put my law in their hearts. I will give them a new covenant. These people, they're going to know me. I mean, you have to understand, these are divine determinations. They're not just promises. These are acts of determination. And the whole chapter, Jeremiah 31, is really a chapter of hope. In fact, when you, when you get to verse 15 and you read the prophecy that's quoted in Matthew, you might have noticed that I, I pointed it out that this one verse is actually in contrast to the other 19 verses. It's the only verse out of 20 that has anything to do with the chastening of God and their sorrow. All the other verses have to do with, you know, I love you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. You're going to have wine and corn and joy. You're going to break out the tambourines and people are going to dance and you're going to be restored. That's the whole chapter. And if anyone thinks that the rebellious nature of those people is never ever going to change, well, think again because there's going to be a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the old covenant that I made with your fathers when I took them out of Egypt. This, this, is, this is new. I'm going to change your very nature. That's the whole context of that one verse. Yes, it's a voice heard in Rama. Yes, it's lamentation. Yes, it's Rachel weeping for her children. But that's not the end of the story. Why? Because that mourning is what it takes to bring about the rest of these wonderful blessings. Well, it's the same situation when Herod murdered those children in Bethlehem. you got the same people Under the same circumstances, with the same consequences, and yet the bright side of that story is that it's the same God working with that nation and those people to bring the Messiah into the world to save them from their sin and to change their very nature. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out this morning. Back in Matthew 2, verse 17, it says, "...then was fulfilled..." what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. It has been fulfilled. You remember our discussion on typology from last week? A type, you recall, is quite simply a picture prophecy. And the type that we saw last week was when Israel came out of captivity at the Exodus. That was a picture prophecy. It was a visual prediction of when the Messiah would come out of Egypt as a baby after the family fled there to escape Herod. Right? When they came out of Egypt, the type, the prophecy, the picture was fulfilled. Here's another type. It's when Rachel's children were taken away by Assyria. Leaving all of those mothers of those children in mourning. You look at that picture. Imagine the event. Okay, that, that, that's a prediction Of what's going to happen now, centuries later, when the mothers of Bethlehem are weeping over the loss of their children. You know, all of us who read Old Testament prophecies often wonder, you know, when are they going to be fulfilled? We we look for the point when the prophecy actually happens. Well, Matthew 2 is telling us. It's the fulfillment of that prophecy in Jeremiah. So it doesn't need to happen again because it's fulfilled. I just reversed the word. It's filled full. That's it. Matthew is saying, then was fulfilled that whole terrible sequence of Rachel weeping after God dealt with her rebellious children being taken away in captivity. That event happened hundreds of years ago. But it was a visual prophecy now fulfilled in Matthew 2. And the Holy Spirit is clearly saying that this kind of thing is over now for those people. It's over for the nation of Israel. There shouldn't be any more weeping over bereavement like that because although God dealt with them by taking away their children, He did it in order to bring about hope in the birth of a child. And once again, in an almost subtle way, God is appealing to His people in this passage. He's drawing them to himself in the story. Just just think about it. Imagine if you're a first century Jewish reader. And you encounter this account. It's going to throw you right back to Jeremiah for this lesson. In fact, I'll put this out. This is the only one of the four statements in chapter 2 connected with Old Testament passages. It's the only one that actually gives the reference. There's no, there's no reference to Micah 5.2. You've got to go looking for it. There's no reference to Isaiah 7.14. You've got to go looking for it. But in this case, the Holy Spirit tells you, hey, go back to Jeremiah. It's right back there. And when you do, the whole of chapter 31 is restoration. It's the new covenant. It's God pointing them back to His ultimate plan. That's what modern Israel needs to Hear and understand as they look back over the sorrows of their past history. They need to look back in their mourning. They need to see the hand and purposes of God in bringing out His Messiah for their saving. Well, as we come to a close this morning, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus is still in a war to this day. It is not of His making, but I promise you it will be of His winning. He is a benevolent ruler. He saves people from themselves in order to make them trophies of His grace so that He can give them all that their heart really delights in and take away their sorrow and their hopelessness. You know, the Bible says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and He adds no sorrow with it. But even in this conflict, Jesus said He who is not with me, is against me. What he meant by that is that there's no middle ground. There's no pretending you're a Christian and getting away with it. You're either for him or you're against him. So choose your side and let the Lord rule in your heart. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of passages like this in Scripture that perhaps we've never truly studied out, we've never looked at in depth. I pray that you would help us to see your amazing sovereign plan, not just for the nation of Israel, but for our own lives, for the people in our families, for our friends and those that we're witnessing to. Lord, help us to see your grand plan and know that you are working in hearts even today. We pray that you would use us as instruments to share the gospel with them, that they might hear and be saved. Father, we rejoice in what you've given us. May we share it with all that we can. We ask your blessing on these people. In Jesus' name, amen.